you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the sports and things up here are new to me. Uh, snow is quite new to me, you know, in the last couple of years in this kind of form. And so I had the privilege this week, uh, a few days ago, of going up uh, Mount Emmons with a friend of mine, Travis, who's right over here. Uh, Travis is my guide. I'm, I'm like a complete novice at going uphill, especially in the woods. And so he, he was kind enough, and I don't think he knew quite what he was getting into when he agreed to wait for me every pitch or every 15 feet or so. Uh, it just took forever. And, you know, of course, my balance is not the greatest. So I'm like, you know, you can imagine I'm like one of those trees in the woods there. And we're going up. And I, I mean, one of the times going up, it's just hard to get, for me, to get used to those little, I know for you guys who scan all the time, this is no big deal. But just to ramp, when it ramps up a little bit, I'm like, <sighs> you know, my balance. And uh, so I, I remember one, he's, he's about 20, 30 feet in front of me, and I'm going up, and it gets a little steeper, and I get about halfway up, and I'm like, hmm. And I just, it's like a cartoon. I'm like going backwards, I'm looking up at him, and you, there's nothing I could do. And I fell over in a tree well, and I'm lying in there, just kind of upside down. And then just to top it off, this, this glob of snow from it goes <laughs> in, all into my hood and stuff. So when I'm getting up, you know, it's all going down my neck. It was one of those experiences, uh, but I had a great time. We, we got up, we didn't go all the way to the top, but when we came out of the trees, you know, we'd been following this track and we got up to, the, to that point and it was just beautiful. And you know how that is whenever you get to the top of the lift or whatever, you look back and you see things from a different perspective. You know, we'd been in the trees, we'd been, you know, focused on where we were going and doing the same thing, you know, just reaching our way up the mountain. But from there, we had this view of everything as it all fits together. And it was beautiful. It was really cool to see. And then he said, well, I'm going to go up here a little bit, and then you come down to me, and we'll just kind of keep working our way down the mountain. So he said, this is the way we're going to go. And, and that's where we're headed, that, over that direction. And really, that's what we're going to be doing as a church for the next few weeks. Not skinning uphill, so don't get worried about that. But what we're going to do is uh, get above the trees for a little bit and look out and see where it is that we're going and who we are, what we're all about. And kind of get that perspective where uh, there is something that we're doing. It's a good thing. And when we're coming to church on a regular basis, being a part of living for Christ in our community, all that's good. But every now and then we need to get up and see where it is that we're headed, and why we're doing what we're doing. And so that's what this is about. We're going to talk about our mission, and our core values, and about our vision. And let me break that down for you just real quickly. One Mission is what you do. And if you want to be technical, it's what you do, and who you do it to. We'll talk about that in a second. And core values are the you know guiding principles. There's things that we own as a body that are key to who we are. And I want to make sure that you all know what those are. I'm going to tell you them right now for the test that we're going to have afterwards. And here's how I remember it. We share. We share. Okay? W-E-S-H-A-R-E. Worship. Equip. Hey, hey. So you're not supposed to be looking at that slide. No, okay. That, you can look at the slide. We share. Worship. Equipping. Service. Harvest. Retreat and recovery. Okay, those are the six things that our church has as part of our, our DNA. And then, one more time. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, it's actually on the wall right there. <laughs> That's okay. I'd rather you take, take notes. 
we share worship, equipping, service, harvest, recovery, and retreat. Or you can switch those. The RE is for two things. See. Uh, and then we'll talk about our vision. And, and vision is what could be. It's the thing that you look for and you say, what could it be like when this church lives for Christ? When these walls really don't exist with our community, when we're having an impact outside of this place, when, it, when we're growing and being discipled and living for him, what does that look like? What could it look like next year and the year after that? That's what the vision is. And we'll get to that at, at the end of the series. But today, we're going to talk about what our purpose is, what our mission is. And there's one word that sums that up, and I think it's in the middle of that. Well, you can barely see it. Our, our mission is one of reconciliation. So if you wanted to know one word that sums up what it is that Obi Joyful is about, it's reconciliation. You could just hold on to that, just keep it in your heart. It's been this way for a while. Fortunately, when I came here, I inherited a, you know, a place that leaders in the body had been involved in that kind of uh, healthy mission for years. And, and here's the thing about it. It kind of breaks out a little bit. We're talking about reconciliation. What we are is we are those who are reconciled to God and who are reconciled to one another and who bring reconciliation to the community and to the world. So there's different levels that we're going to break that out as we go forward. So some of you may be thinking, well, Aren't all churches about the same thing? I mean, what, why do you have this, dis, what's distinctive about this church? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't every church just have the same mission statement? Is, aren't we all doing the same thing? And I, I think it's important that I say this, and, and often the, the worship team will say this, that we're a Christ-centered and biblically-based church. And that's a distinctive. We're a Christ-centered and biblically-based church. Because of that, there are certain things that are a part of who... Yeah, we need to pass the offering. <laughs> Mark, just remember. And we, it actually costs money to run the place, <laughs> like all other churches. Thanks, Mark. No, that's okay. It's probably... We would have forgotten. And You know, that is a cool thing, and I'll just take a little aside here. This church is so faithful and financially providing. Uh, it's amazing. In our, and it's a com- combination of people from who have nothing to give but give their time or their heart. There's then people who can give just a little bit, little kids that bring their quarters. And then we have people here who can give a lot. And then we have second homeowners who give little and a lot. It's wonderful. Um, our budget was about 300 and really about $350,000 this year. Um, we spent... We spent less than that, but the income is about uh, four, four fifteen now, I think. So, you know, God just, you know, it's, it's nice to see that, you know, to be able to spend less than we anticipated, but also God just provides, and it, and it opens the door to new things, which we'll be talking about as we go forward. It's, and, and we'll have a meeting here pretty soon to inform you more about that. So, let's see, where was individual churches? Uh, Every church, because of the personality of, of the people that are there, they have the same basic DNA, but just like a person or a family, it expresses itself differently. We look different. 
in different communities for different reasons and the way that God's wired us and, and certain things that we need to do in the places that we are. Therefore, um, it's important for our church to have its own personality, not to be broken away from the church, the whole church, but to say this is who we are and we are about reconciliation. In reconciliation is a word that I think joins together those ideas of discipling people as they come to know Christ and helping people to know him. That's the big picture of the church. But we're just saying it in our own special way so that we can all remember it. It's like the we share thing. And, and that's where our passage picks us up. We're going to be in Second uh, Corinthians 5. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. He's writing a letter to them, and he's boiling down really what the church is about. He's talking about what they are doing as leaders, these people that are going around and encouraging the church and, and building up the church. They're talking about that. That's what he's sharing about. But what he's saying applies to the whole body, every single one of us in the body as a whole. So I want to read this with you. And this is Paul's writing. This is deep stuff. So uh, dig in. I'm going to read it slowly, and I want you to just kind of absorb and listen to see what kind of jumps out to you as we go through this. 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 20. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we don't regard him that way any longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Now, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, or to say it again, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, we'll go on to verse 20. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So reconciliation means restored relationship. That's the meaning of the word reconciliation. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you about a time when, when Claire and I went to counseling because we were going through a really hard time in our marriage. And when that happened, you know, I was expecting to find all the answers and then fix it and fix myself. And if you were here, you remember the long and drawn out story that I told about that. But at the end, we came to understand each other more fully and be reconciled in a lot of ways, on a lot of levels. It was fantastic. That is not what this is. This is not about getting to know God better and so sort of being reconciled because we know more about him or something like that. Being reconciled to God is a, is a different thing. And so over the next couple of weeks, as we, we're going to break out this passage a little bit more, but we're going to see the need for reconciliation today. We're going to just talk about that for a few minutes. 
And then we're going to talk about God's role in that reconciliation, how he makes that happen. And then what our role is in reconciliation, get kind of specific for us, even in our community and, and where we are in our homes, where we live, if we're not from here. So today, about the need for reconciliation, uh, the word reconciliation automatically tells you that there's a problem, right? So let's just say that up front. If you need to be reconciled, if we need to be reconciled, that means we have a problem. But it, it also means, um, let me say that another way, you don't have reconciliation unless something is broken. So something is broken, but at the same time, reconciliation means that there was once peace in the relationship before. Okay? You see, there's sort of a full-featured meaning of the word reconciliation that you don't always take at first, that, that reconciliation demands a problem, something that's broken. It's about relationships and that there was a healthy relationship before that could actually be reconciled and put right. So that's how that sort of flows out. And another, uh, let, me, let me say this. Um, all of the things that I'm saying, if you're, if you're thinking, and I, I think the thing about this audience, this body, everyone who's here, everyone here is just so darn bright. I, you know you are. I'm not just saying that to puff you up. You guys are thinking people. And you should be asking questions, like the deepest questions about anything that I'm saying. You shouldn't just be taking it. Because everything that I'm saying assumed one major thing, and that's a, there's a God who's a creator that we can know. Right? There's this foundational thing that there is a God who has at one time had the right relationship with us. And all of these things come from the scripture. And I think you can see them without even seeing the scripture. We can see this concept of God reaching to us. But we're assuming that. And if you're a thinking person, if you're just, uh, if you've been a believer for a long time or you're really considering what this whole thing is about, these are the things you need to think about. That there is, this is the claim that there is a God that we can know. The God that, a God that wants to know us. Uh, look at verse 20. The second half of that, he says, we implore you, on behalf of Christ, he's speaking to people in the church who maybe have not made this decision to be reconciled to God yet. He says, be reconciled to God. See, the, the Bible takes us back to the earliest days. If you look at Genesis, and you can see this throughout the scripture, it goes back and it says, at one time, we as humans had a right relationship with God. Things were good. And in that time, uh, God allowed us to be able to make a decision. And it was a decision that had the promise of giving us authority. And if you go back and look at it or read about it, you know, it's authority that's equal with God. In other words, I want to know what God knows. I want to have more of what I already had. The thing was that as humans, we are already in a right relationship with God. And the temptation to have more of what we already had le has led to the saddest. It, it, it's hard to even com think about <laughs> to comprehend the magnitude of what happened. 
everything from that point forward was broken. Everything about our relationship with God was broken. We all understand this. If you've been, especially if you're married or have been, then you know that what happens is that uh, really any close relationship with parents or anything, somehow something comes along and and a wall starts to get built. And And it becomes thicker and thicker. It gets harder and harder to make the bridge across that gap. We all experienced it. It's what happens. And some, eventually, and often the wall gets so high that we think there is no way to get over that wall and the, and the relationship is separated. So we all understand the idea of a separation of relationship, right? We all get that. It makes sense in our hearts and our minds. We've experienced it. We are the children of Adam, okay? We are the children who have inherited the consequences of the decision that was made. It's a part of who we are, and so we are unable to cross the gap between us and God and, and fix that relationship. Uh, I think at this point, if you're thinking, you should be saying, well, how can one thing, one decision that was made ruin everything and cause all the wickedness and all the strife and all the suffering and all the burden that we know. How can that possibly be? Anybody wonder that? I'll I'll tell you, this is the quick and simple answer. The answer is that we do not even comprehend the holiness of God. It's our, our nature to ask that question is to question the holiness of God and to say that perhaps I have a better standard in mind, right? Because I wouldn't have done that, right? I wouldn't, have call, I wouldn't have let this happen. It's really God's fault. But, but think about with this, this with me for a second. This, this thing that is the holiness of God, in short, is the goodness of God that is the absolute standard for what is right. He is the absolute standard for what is right. Nothing can approach it, and nothing can, uh, can change it. Nothing can penetrate that. It is, it is absolute rightness. And when we bump into absolute rightness, there are always consequences for that. Uh, let me maybe illustrate it to you this way. Uh, this is a ruler that we have in the office. And we all know that if we want to measure something, especially a lot of you are builders in here, if you, want, you probably wouldn't want to use this particular ruler. <laughs> but in order to get things the way they're supposed to be, you have to have a measure. You have to have something to measure against. Something has to be the authority. If we all just came in and said, oh, you know, I like the way wax runs. That's how I decide how to measure things, you know? Or I just grab some rocks and I measure things with with rocks. What would this building look like? See, 
it's so natural for us to put ourselves in the place of God and decide that we know what should have happened. And all we're doing is, is we're disagreeing with His holiness, with the absolute standard. And, and here's the thing we got to talk about, y'all, as, as intellectuals, as smart people today. Intellectuals today hold, in, even non-intellectuals, hold up the, Im, the immovable value, if, you wanna, if I could call it that, of relativism. That is holy to us, especially as Westerners. Certain things are relative, it's true. But when we come to the absolute standards, there is no such thing as relativism. Because if you've thought, and if you want to spend time, there is no way to say every truth is right. Every idea is right. It is not possible. And if you're, if you're intellectual, if you're a thinking person, and you're saying that anything goes, you need to think some more. I just want to be honest with you. And, and you've got to address it. And I'm not telling you that as a Christian or a pastor or anything else. I'm telling you that as a, I mean, maybe a friend too. I'm your friend. But I'm telling you, you've got to face that. I've got to face that. Everything is not equally right. It just isn't. Because there is a standard of holiness. I have a friend. He's one of my best friends. And he's, uh, he's probably 30. And he's a smart guy. Uh, his name's David. And he's, he actually uh, works in Nicaragua teaching students uh, in a Christian school. He's trying to help the next generation to follow Christ. And one of the things he has done since I knew him in high school is, is he'll say this. We'll have a conversation. He likes deep conversations. And he'll say, well, Scott, I feel like this is what, you know, it ought to be. Now, that's his ultimate trump card. Because if you tell me, I feel like this is true, what can I say? I can't say anything. It's awesome. You should use it sometime. <laughs> if you're having a conversation and people are like, these are the facts and it's this, you say, well, I feel like, in my experience, you know, and then it all bets are off and you're just having a different kind. Now, I'm not saying that we don't know things existentially. Our faith is an existential idea. That we actually come to this point and we have to leap across a gap of not knowing and make a decision based on something we can't see. That is in itself existential and requires us to actually uh, base some things on feelings. Things that we can't prove. So I'm not saying that that's wrong. What I'm saying is we've got to admit that there is a standard of holiness. Because when we do that a standard of what is right and good, then we understand at least better the fact that we can't bump into that and change it because it exists and it's a reality, right? So feelings are good, but God's holiness is a standard. But here's the thing about this. if If you're picturing this garden situation where God has allowed his creation, the pinnacle of his creation to choose against him? In other words, he he actually let his creation choose to reject him. And one of those things we hold so highly as Westerners is the idea of a personal choice. And that's exactly what God does. And that's where we get the idea. 
but the personal choice doesn't allow us to go through holiness. Here's one other thing about that. We underplay two things, the incredible holiness and standard of God, and the other thing is the incredible affront that crossing that line is. We use the word sin for that, right, in the Bible. We just don't think it's that big of a deal. God values our decisions, and I, I can't, I've, it's just so, such a big idea. It's hard to get my mind around it. I, I'm sure I can't. Here's another thing about this whole reconciliation, this problem that we're in that, that leads to the need for reconciliation, and, and that's this, that it's unfixable. We cannot fix it. We cannot get to the other side of the wall. We cannot fix the relationship that we have with God. So no counseling session with God, no promises that you make, no things that you did in the past that are good or that you think you're going to do in the future, no apologies, no fixing your, no getting rid of the addictions, no getting rid of those subtle things that you do, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Nothing that you do can fix the relationship. Nothing that I do can fix that relationship. Now again, if you're thinking... You have to say, well, what is, when I, I thought that you said that one decision, one thing that these people did broke the relationship. How can you break a relationship if you can't fix it? See where I'm going with that? So it wouldn't make any sense for me to stand up here and say, you can't fix it, but you can break it. That's not, that doesn't hold water. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And that there was a time when this decision was made, when the choice was there. The choice that through history we have, inher- we have inherited the consequences of. But it's not our individual actions that can make us right with God. It's belief in what he has done to fix the relationship that makes us right with God, not things that we do. So, these, these actions, so, so when you're born, when you have, there's little babies in here that are the cutest things in the world, right? There's some babies in here with the cheeks this big. You just want to squeeze them. They're so cute. We are all in the family of Adam, okay? That's just who we are. We are born with that DNA. We are in that family, okay? The family of those who are opposed to God. That's who we are. We cannot help it. And that's what's so crushingly sad about what happened in this breaking of the relationship. And then we add our own decisions to that, right? We do our own thing. And we personally end up rebelling against God. It's very important from the scripture as Bible-believing people that we understand, that's what we're teaching at Obi Joyful, is that it's not because Elsa did something that she is now apart from God, or she can do something else that makes her apart from God or bre- breaks her relationship with God. That's not what this is about. She's already, when she was born, had inherited this DNA, this, if you will, spiritual DNA of brokenness, of animosity with God. And now, fortunately, during her high school career, she came to the point where she realized there wasn't anything that she could do, but it was what God had done for her. 
she, her only action is to believe. So this thing that breaks relationship, and I, I mentioned it before, it's called sin. And I, I really don't like using that word very much. If you use sin out in public, you know, people are like, Psh. you know, that's when they really call you a Baptist, okay, or a Bible thumper or whatever. It's, it just doesn't connect, especially sinner. You know, if that, if that word comes up in the news, you know, you cringe when they say it, you know, on their, on their TV or something. It just, it's hard. And it doesn't mean we don't say it because it's the word that's in the scripture and it's okay. But, what I'm trying to show you about all of this idea of the breaking of the relationship, that thing that breaks the relationship and his animosity with God is called sin. So maybe we can unload all of the things that we've heard and thought and learned about what sin is and think more about just the fact that that is the thing that breaks our relationship with God. And here's something that Paul says in Romans. It's really important. He says, uh, it's in 623. It says, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus our Lord. The result of this broken relationship is to be separated from God forever. When we bump into this, uh, this thing that is the holiness of God in our sin and our rebellion against Him, the result, the consequences are really horrific and permanent. Let me illustrate this one more way. We all, gravity is something we all love because we have most of our fun when we're doing something related to gravity, one way or the other. So we enjoy it, we, we don't talk about it, we don't go, hey, I love gravity, you know? <laughs> Such an awesome thing. But we can't ignore the consequences of gravity. It's not punishment, if I jump off this roof and hit the ground and break my back. It's just what happens when you go up against gravity. We all understand these ideas, but we have decided they're not okay if God employs them against or with us. Okay, I, should, I almost said against, but with us. Uh, I'm going to wrap up here in just a second, but I, I think it's really important to say that in all of this, in all these things we're talking about, God doesn't ever change the rules. He doesn't change because it's hard or because they're suffering or because he's suffering or any, because of us. He knew what it would cost to let us choose against him. Think about it for a second. He knew what the cost would be. Let me... Let me read this. Look at verse five. I mean, verse twenty-one of chapter five, 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him—that's Jesus—who knew no sin—to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God knew the cost. When he, correct, when he would make possible the correction of the relationship. And he's not up there wringing his hands, oh gosh, you know, what's going to happen to these people? How can I get this fixed? He, from the beginning, he knew what this would cost. And, and he let us choose anyway. I think that's incredible what it says about how he values us, how highly he thinks of us, of his creation. 
You know, in Luke 15, those are probably my favorite stories in, or illustrations that Jesus gives. He talks about God seeking us like that. The poor woman is seeking that lost coin. She tears everything apart. She's after that coin. And once she rips it all apart, finds a coin, she has a party. Remember? And then in the same chapter is the story about this, this sheep that goes off and the, uh, the shepherd says, you guys stay here with the other guy. I'm going out after the one. These tell us about what God is doing. He's not worried about how he's going to fix this. He's coming after us actively on purpose. He's seeking us and calling us, each of us really by name. In his effort to restore you and I to relationship, the thing that he has done is greater than any sin that you have committed or will commit or could even imagine. You can't out you can't outsin God's ability to come after you. We think we can. We think our sin is that good. God's gift of the, the, the Messiah, the one who would become sin on our behalf, who would take our place and take our consequences, that thing that he did covers everything. It makes restored and renewed relationship with God possible for all people of all time. It take, he took our place. As God, he was capable of doing that. So he didn't change the rules. He didn't change his holiness or the consequences of bumping into that holiness, even for himself. And here, I'm going to close with this. He still doesn't force you or me to choose him. Get it? He didn't choose it. He didn't make us do it then, and he doesn't make us do it now. You had the freedom to choose. My prayer, well, and remember those last words of verse 20? Paul says, I implore you because you can be reconciled to God. Because of Jesus, be reconciled to God. I implore you, be reconciled to God. The only thing that we do, our only part in that, is to believe. That's it. Let me pray. Father, we, uh, we come to you and we, we just acknowledge the heaviness of our rebellion against you, of our choice and our consistent choice to question you. And Lord, somehow you are willing. We see all through the psalm, all through the scripture, uh, your people questioning you and anger, angry with you. And, and Lord, just like Lisa prayed this morning, wherever we're coming from, you have made it clear that's okay. Lord, I pray that each of us, no matter how uh, enlightened we find ourselves to be, I mean believers and non-believers in this room, Lord, that we would honestly come to... Uh, deal with uh, what you have, have done, or that we would face it and we would think through it and we would talk to you about it. Uh, Lord, we just, we owe it to ourselves, if, if not to you. Um, I pray that we would each do that. God, I also thank you for uh, staying true, for being firm, for being who you are. Lord, that you are the absolute standard of goodness and righteousness and rightness. And Lord, you have uh, graciously made a way through your son for us to know you and to be reconciled and to be uh, 
in a right place with you. I thank you for that. Uh, what a blessing, Lord. We, we can't, those of us who have believed, we're just overwhelmed by that. So uh, let us this week go out in the joy of knowing that. Uh, thank you for the blessing of being together with these uh, friends today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all have a great week.